Really excited this morning to have an old friend. He's not old at all, but he's an old friend to <laughs> Bethel. He was on staff here. Uh, many of you remember Kevin Friesen. In fact, he is now, among other things, he's a worship pastor at a church, so he's doing the music again. And what was the name of the church? Uh, Saratoga Presbyterian Church. Yeah, Saratoga Presbyterian Church. And so um, Kevin was a huge reason why... Lori and I are here, and so that's either a good thing or a bad thing. So but, you can blame me, I guess, exactly. But yeah, so, he's the yeah, first yeah. guy I met, I think, that represented who Bethel was, and he's just awesome. His family is here. Hey, guys. Good to see you. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so anyway, when Kevin, when Kevin shares from the message, uh, from the word, it's always has a huge impact in my life. So I'm excited to hear from you this morning. Welcome, right. Kevin Friesen. Hey, thanks. <clears throat> Well, good morning. It really is uh, very fun to, to be uh, with you again. I think uh, last summer when Bill was on vacation, um, I was able to come back and share a message. So every year, every time Bill gets a vacation, you get stuck with me for at least a week. So sorry about that. I wouldn't let him have any more vacations. So that's one way to solve that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great to be with you. Uh, many of you are, are familiar and a lot of you are not. And so uh, welcome. If, if you're new to Bethel, either today's your first day because your kids were part of VBS or maybe newer in the last weeks or months or even a few years, I, I can tell you that this is a great church. It's a church that is um, not perfect. It's a church that makes lots of human mistakes. It's a church that it doesn't take long to find something, someone or something that will come to offend you. Uh, but that's what makes it a great church because it's pretty honest and authentic. And it's full of real people. Uh, and so and if, if you're not perfect and if you sometimes stumble and if sometimes you, you can be a little bit offensive, you'll probably fit in great here. Um, because uh, uh, this is just a place with real people who are really trying with their whole heart to seek God. And, and simply say, what does it mean to know God personally? What does it mean to follow Jesus and to be a disciple, one who, who tries and strives to become more and more like Christ? So uh, welcome to all of you. Uh, yeah, I am, I am leading worship part-time at Saratoga Presbyterian Church. And, and the way Eric said it, it sounded kind of like you would think of this. Actually, I have like this little choir of about 12 or 13 people. They're all over 60 years old. And uh, it is really fun. It's like the antithesis of this. And so it's so fun to be here this morning. Um, but uh, I love um, getting to work um, a little bit part-time doing that as well as some other things. So I'm glad uh, to be here. When Bill called a couple weeks ago and asked if I'd speak today, um, I said, okay, I'd love to. And, uh, you know, is there a you know, theme or, or, or a focus? And he says, yeah, we're trying to really just kind of go back to basic blocking and tackling as a church and say, what does it mean to be a healthy church? So run the focus on this passage from Matthew. It's, it's three chapters in the book of Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7. And uh, it's one of the longest passages we have of, of Jesus' um, teaching. And, and, and it's really, it's, it's a whole you know, message, it's a whole sermon. We, we get you know, little bits and snippets of, of him along the way. And so this morning, I, I wanted to focus on that for a couple of reasons. One, um, because I think it lays out the groundwork of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Uh, but also, it, it calls us to how we're supposed to live in that kingdom. And so that's, um, and, and I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. I'm actually going to read the entire passage, all three chapters. Like, oh my gosh, that's like a lot of reading, isn't it? Yeah, so, but I'm going to read the whole thing. It'll take like 15 minutes or so. But I'm going to have Jesus' words be the message um, this morning. Uh, I didn't want 
I don't have much to comment or add to. I, actually, I have a lot to comment and add to. I'll, I'll do a little preamble, a little post. But really, I, I want the, 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 the message itself to be the focus. I, um, this summer earlier, uh, Christine and I had the opportunity to go to Germany for a couple of weeks on vacation. She has some family over there, and, and it was a great time. But um, part of in, on that trip, I, wanted, I like to read books sometimes around where we're visiting, sometimes just get a little feel of the culture or something like that. So I read the, the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, uh, 1920s, 1930s, uh, was, was martyred in 1945, uh, was a theologian, a pastor. Uh, he was actually killed, um, martyred for his role in the, in the assassination and attempts on Hitler. Uh, a fabulous man, but as I was reading through his biography, I, I always wondered, where was the Church of Germany during the rise of Hitler? How, how could Christian people allow all that transpired through uh, the Second World War in Germany? How could that happen? And, and this biography was powerful in terms of explaining all that, but also what Bonhoeffer um, really came as this crux of his message was that we, we, need, we never really grow beyond um, the centrality of focusing on Jesus and living life in the Sermon on the Mount. And so um, that stuck with me. And, 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 and then I'm also reading the second biography this summer. So I had Bonhoeffer one hand. I'm reading the biography of Steve Jobs. Very much like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, only not. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and just I'm struck by two men who had a significant impact on the world and um, come from two different phil- philosophical points. Here's a quote by Steve Jobs. And uh, are we, uh, we're searching for it here. I'll read it to you, and eventually it might come up. It says... Um, this is Steve Jobs. He says, The juice goes out of Christianity when it becomes too based on faith rather than on living like Jesus or seeing the world as Jesus saw it. I'll read that again. The juice goes out of Christianity when it becomes too based on faith rather than on living like Jesus or seeing the world as Jesus saw it. I think Steve Jobs represents a very common approach to Jesus and Christianity that we experience today. And it's the fact that Jesus was a good teacher, a very noble and, and uh, obviously a kind-hearted man. And he is, his life is certainly worth mimicking, of imitating, of learning from. But I love how Jobs says, yeah, but you know, when you get too Christian, when you, all of a sudden this whole faith thing kicks in, because then it, stops, you know, it starts losing its appeal. And I think that's often the way that, that many of us can view Jesus as someone that we can learn from, but we equate him with the Gandhis and the Mother Teresas and, and, and the others that are inspiring lives, but maybe not, you know, we still pick and choose how we want to follow them. And I would suggest that that is a, um, a flawed way, certainly, to follow Christ. Uh, it may be noble. It may feel somewhat spiritual but it, um, it does not transform a life. I want to contrast that with a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said, when all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. Again, I'll read that again. When all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. What Bonhoeffer describes is the life of following Christ is an absolute battle, a struggle, a workout, a constant striving 
to let the Spirit control and shape and transform our lives and battling that flesh. It's not something passive. It's not something we admire. It's not something we strive to imitate. It's something we work and sweat over to put on and to work out our salvation. And I guess as, as, as I read through the Sermon on the Mount today, I want us to have on this mindset that it's not just inspiring um, literature. It's not just a, a noble way of living. It is a call for you and I to go to work to become more and more like Jesus and allow him to work through us and to transform us. Now, the context of this sermon, Jesus is early on in his ministry. He's really coming to light. John the Baptist has been arrested and, and is kind of passed the mantle of, of uh, spiritual leader of Israel to Jesus. And he's gaining popularity every day. This is early on. The people are drawn to him, his miracles, his teaching. And so Jesus is, is walking out in the hillside. Interesting, he's not in the hub of activity. He's not in Jerusalem. He's out where the common people are where the less educated people are, where the less influential people are. And they are flocking to him. What we're finding is that the people are coming out, the, the, the civil leaders, the religious leaders are coming out to him rather than him going to knock on their door. And so we see these crowds starting to amass. And Jesus is um, out on the hillside actually seeking to talk to them. Now, now the religious culture of this time, again, this was a, um, a state where everyone was Jewish. And so it was um, very much uh, um, controlled by uh, the religious leaders of the day. And they were oppressive in their legalism. The Pharisees were just oppressive with all their laws. And, and they were the ones who were the examples. And they were very arrogant and very proud and very legalistic of all the hundreds of rules that they kept. And they would just really, you talk about guilt and shame and, and just oppressiveness. Uh, they, they, were, they epitomized that whole thing of religious oppression uh, because of the legalism. So that was the context of the day. Also, this was a people that understood the idea of the kingdom of God. Again, being good Jews, they had, they had learned and read the Old Testament scriptures that someday a king would come, a Messiah would come. And so when Jesus is declaring himself to be that Messiah, this is like huge because like if this really is our king, then this is going to change everything. And so this idea of God's kingdom on earth was, um, was uh, being established and, and, uh, and so very, very important in that regard. And then also... Um, when we go through the, the passages, realizing that Jesus isn't giving a prescription of all the things they need to do or not do. He really is, this is a type of literature called wisdom literature, where he's teaching principles of what it means to be a part of the kingdom. And so as we go through it, you realize that if we followed everything exactly as Jesus said, we'd be chopping off our arms and gouging out our eyes. And, and it's just, I don't think that's really what Jesus, no, I'm sure that's not what Jesus had in mind. Again, and they would have understood the context of even the literary nature of this as we go on. I'm okay without it. I'm good. Thank you, though. I appreciate that in terms of the slides. So that's the context of the day. And as I read this, um, several things I want you to be listening for in terms of what Jesus is doing. First of all, he is reversing the cultural paradigms. What Jesus values is exactly opposite of what is valued in the day. Think about what we value as a culture. Think about modern 21st century American. And listen for what God values, what God blesses. And hear how contrary it is to what our culture values. Jesus dismantles legalism. If in your past, if, if there's part of you that says there is these list of things that you have to do and a list of things you can't do to be a good Christian, a good Christ follower, a, a, a good, um, Jesus is dismantling that whole legalistic approach. He is saying it's about the heart. 
He is calling out hypocrisy. And he's labeling it as just gross and arrogant. And so if you're turned off by hypocrisy that you see in in the church today, guess what? You're in great company because Jesus is as well. He tells us how to pray and how to seek God. We should listen because we have the Son of God telling us how we can come close to the Heavenly Father. He names self-sufficiency and worry as sin. I think this really strikes the core of us as, as, as American people. We are very self-sufficient. We are independent. We like to manage our own world. That's, there's, there's great pride and dignity in being responsible for my own stuff. And, and we certainly want to be responsible, but this idea of self-sufficiency, that I have to make, get, take care of everything in my life, Jesus says, no, you have a father that cares more than that. He calls us out on that, and I think that he really steps on our cultural toes. We need to allow him to do that. And finally, he calls his followers to obedience. Clear, simple, unapologetic obedience. So I'm going to read this, um, this sermon to you. This is Jesus' message. I'm reading from the message. Now, the message is not a translation of the scripture. It's actually a paraphrase. And so I like it in this context because it's, uh, it's much more common. And so uh, this probably wouldn't hold up for the Greek word-by-word translation, but it certainly captures the essence and the feel. And um, as we do this, I want to invite you just to imagine yourself sitting on the hillside. Imagine yourself as someone who is, um, is battling the spiritual oppression of legalism. Imagine yourself as someone who's hopeful that maybe God can come and intersect your world in a real way, in a, in a personal and individual way, and that this man, Jesus, who's talking to you for the next 15 minutes, he may be God's, God's message, God's person, God himself intervening in your life. And just allow his words. You can... If you want to, you can follow along in your scripture, but I encourage you maybe just to kind of sit and just listen as uh, Jesus talks to us for about 15 minutes about what it means, not how to get into the kingdom, but what it means to be a part of the kingdom. So when Jesus saw his ministry drawing crowds, he climbed up on the hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the, the committed, they climbed with him. And arriving in a quiet place, he sat down and he taught his climbing companions. And this is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God in his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourself cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. 
and all heaven applauds and knows that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out God's flavor in the earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be, to be light, to bring out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm, pulling, I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Don't suppose for a minute that I've come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I'm going to put it all together, put it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after the stars burn out and earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. Trivialize even the smallest item in God's law and you will only have trivialized trivialized yourself. But take it seriously. Show the way for others and you will find honor in the kingdom. Unless you do far better than the Pharisees in the matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot, and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister, and you are on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. This is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters. If you enter a place of worship and are about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a a grudge a friend has against you. Abandon your offering. Leave immediately. Go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then, come back and work things out with God. Or say you're out on the street and an old enemy uh, accosts you. Don't lose a minute. Make the first move. Make things right with him. After all, if you leave the first move to him, knowing his track record, you're likely to end up in court or maybe even in jail. If that happens, you won't get out until you pay a stiff fine. You know the next commandment pretty well, too. It says, don't go to bed with another spouse. But don't think of you've, you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. Let's not pretend this is easier than it really is. If you want to live a morally pure life, here's what you have to do. You have to blind your right eye the moment you catch it in a lustful leer. You have to choose to live one-eyed or else be dumped on a moral trash pile. And you have to chop off your right hand the moment you notice it raised threateningly. Better a bloody stump than your entire being discarded for good in the dump. Remember the scripture that says whoever divorces his wife, let him do it legally, giving her divorce papers and her legal rights? Too many of you are using that as a cover for selfishness and whim, pretending to be righteous just because you are legal. Please, no more pretending. If you divorce your wife, you're responsible for making her an adulteress, unless she has already made herself that by sexual promiscuity. And if you marry such a divorced adulteress, you're automatically an adulterer yourself. 
You can't use legal cover to mask a moral failure. And don't say anything you don't mean. The council is embedded deep in our traditions. You only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk. I'll pray for you and, and never doing it or saying, God be with you and not meaning it. You don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious lace. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes and no. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make it a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old, unwritten law, the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish. He gives his best to everyone. Regardless, the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anyone can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? And any run-of-the-mill sinner can do that. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. You're kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives towards you. Now be especially careful when you're trying to do good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. When you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. You've seen them in action. I'm sure I call them play actors, treating prayer meeting and street corner alike as a stage, acting compassionate as long as someone is watching, playing to the crowds. They get applause, true, but that's all they get. When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks. Just do it, quietly and unobtrusively. That is the way your God, who conceived you in love, working behind the scenes, helps you out. And when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production either. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in a box seat? (laughs) Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can imagine. The focus will shift from you to God, and you will begin to sense his grace. The world is so full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you're dealing with, and he knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply like this. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best. And above and below, keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven with you and, and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and from the devil. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. You're ablaze in beauty. Yes, yes, yes. In prayer, There is a connection between what God does and what you do. 
You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. When you practice some appetite-denying discipline to better concentrate on God, don't make a production out of it. It might turn you into a small-time celebrity, but it won't make you a saint. If you go into training inwardly, act normal outwardly. Shampoo and comb your hair, brush your teeth, wash your face. God doesn't require attention-getting devices. He won't overlook what you are doing. He will reward you well. Don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and or corroded by rust or even worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one god, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. If you decide for God, living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtime or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. There is far more to your life than the food you put in your stomach, more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, careless in the care of God. And you count far more to him than birds. Has anyone by fussing in front of the mirror ever gotten taller by so much as an inch? All this time and money wasted on fashion, do you think it makes that much difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop, but have you ever seen color and design quite like that? The 10 best-dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you? Take pride in you? Do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works, they fuss over these things. But you both know God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Give your attention to what God is doing right now And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. Now, don't pick on people, jump on their failures, or criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you, when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face, and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. Don't be flipped with the sacred. Banter and silliness give no honor to God. Don't reduce holy mysteries to slogans. In trying to be relevant, you're only being cute and inviting sacrilege. And don't bargain with God. Be direct. Be direct. 
Ask for what you need. This isn't a cat and mouse hide and seek game we're in. If your child asks for bread, do you trick him with sawdust? If he asks for fish, do you scare him with a live snake at his plate? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of doing such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children. So don't you think the God who conceived you in love will be even better? Here's a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's law and prophets, and this is what you get. Don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff. Even though crowds of people do, the way to life, the way to God is vigorous and requires total attention. Be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practice sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off in some way or the other. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. Knowing the correct password, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my father wills. I can see it now. At the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preached the message. We bashed the demons. Our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking. And do you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life. Homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words. Words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. When the storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. That was the conclusion. says, when Jesus concluded this address, the crowds burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he was living everything he was saying, quite a contrast to the religious leaders. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. I think sometimes we can be like that, where the teaching of Jesus has caused us to scream, yes, I love that. It's awesome. Jesus is awesome. And then we go back to our regular life. And we might think about it, reflect on it, talk about it, dabble in maybe transforming our lives. But we live our lives as fans, as, as um, not followers, because that implies a sense of doing, but certainly not as disciples. Interestingly enough, these same crowds would be the ones that deserted him. Jesus did not stay popular because he kept preaching this. And I'm sure even as they were applauding, Jesus probably smiled inside saying, oh guys, this is just a start. It's going to get a lot harder. Because anyone in this room 
who has committed their life to following Christ knows that at times it's scary. At times it is lonely. At times it is painful. It always requires sacrifice. It always requires cost. At times you wonder, where is God? Jesus himself struggled in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, clawing at the dirt, saying, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what it means to follow Christ. It's not just this beautiful, eloquent teaching that says, wow, that's cool. It's a life transformed. But the great thing is, it's not just up to how talented or how disciplined or how determined you are to make that transition. Because this is what sets Jesus apart. Well, there's many things that set him apart. But I think perhaps the most profound is he doesn't say, okay, now everybody, go, go live this way and you'll be great disciples. And so then we all kind of take our place and the high achievers succeed and the rest of us are down here failing regularly, right? Um, he says, no, guess what? I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to live within you. I'm not just going to call you to live this way. I'm going to fill your life with the supernatural power of God so that when you are in these moments, when you are desperate, when you are afraid, when you are anxious, when you are bitter, when you are resentful, when you're all these things, when you're battling lust, when you're battling arrogance, all these types of things, guess what? I'm going to live within you, and together my power is going to help you overcome that if you'll submit to it. You see, the king of this kingdom doesn't just demand obedience from his subjects. He does demand obedience from his subjects. But he himself lives within us to give us the power and to change us and to forgive us and to train us and to fill us so we can live a life that follows him. That's really good news. That's great news. And so what we have is, I call it a mystery of embarking on a journey that's really impossible to complete in this life. Becoming like Jesus is, is unattainable in this life. But yet it's only in our striving on this impossible goal that I fully arrive, not just where I'm supposed to be in terms of in heaven with God, but more importantly, who I'm supposed to be. You see, it's in the wrestling, it's in the striving, it's in the following that I become transformed. I become to look more and more like Jesus. If God simply wanted us in heaven, he could solve that in an instant. He'd say, hey, everybody, up in heaven, poof, we're there. He doesn't just want us there. He wants to change us. He wants to mold us and shape us. He wants to look more and more like his son, Jesus. And to do that requires that you and I live this life. Navigate your journey. Battle your demons. Overcome your obstacles. Celebrate your victories. Live that life so that in that living, you are working out that faith, that following of Jesus. Not just trying to apply his teaching like the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I'll live by that. Yes, we're supposed to live by that. But walking fully into that and living every relationship and every opportunity saying, how does God want me to live in this situation? That's what it means to be a Christ follower. And I know that the men and women of this church want to be more than just a neat place where people can come and learn about God. Certainly want to be that. But this is a place where people want to be more and more like Jesus. And it requires that we submit to him and allow him to fill us and to walk with us and to transform us. And I don't know where you're at in your own personal journey. Maybe you're trying to discover things of God. Maybe you, in your past you, you came to church and now you're just kind of coming back. Or, you know, we're all over the map. I mean, and so I couldn't begin to, to predict or guess where you are personally. 
But here's what I want to clearly say. As you learn about Jesus, realizing that following him does require faith. And regardless of what Steve Jobs says, it is not where the juice is sucked out of Christianity. The life of Christianity is inserted because of faith. I would say a Christianity that is not based on faith is lifeless and juiceless because then you're just stuck with trying to be good. Who wants to be good? Because, I mean, just being good for good's sake is not very productive in our culture. But when we apply faith, all of a sudden our Christianity comes alive because we become intimate with God. We become powerful. We become overcomers. We become forgivers. We become, we become, uh, we become givers. We become all these things that Jesus was and is. Because faith is an active word. We use the word faith like, I have faith that the Giants are going to come back and win the pennant this year. And that's misplaced, right? I mean, exactly. <laughs> I mean, but we say, oh, we got to keep the faith, right? You know, don't stop, believe, and all that type of stuff. We can do it, you know. Um, but we use the word faith. That's not the kind of faith. That's not Bible faith. I, I appreciate that. Uh, uh, but, um, but Bible faith is a verb that's active, And it means, I believe this, therefore I'm acting. The epitome of faith in the Bible is the man Abraham. He's held up as the icon of faith. And you know what story is used to demonstrate his faithfulness? When when God tells him to go out into the desert and to slay his own son as a sacrifice. And as Abraham's ready and raising that knife, God says, Abraham, stop. And forever, that's the story that's held up, says that's what faith is. Reckon to him as righteousness. For us to have faith in God. Now, that story blows my mind. You start going deep, like, what? What kind of God? All the, I mean, there's a lot there. But at the end of the day, it was that faith that was reckoned to him as righteousness. And that's what's required for you and I. It's a faith that has teeth. A faith that people can see. Not just words that we talk about over dinner with friends. That's what God's calling all of us to. That's what he wants his church to be. It's full of men and women living that faith. We can do that together. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your words. Thank you that you are a God who is very clear about what you expect, what you want. Um, And it's not our behavior that you want. You want us. You want our relationship. And so may we have the courage and the, um, the discipline to accept your Um, message of love and forgiveness and then to allow you to transform us so that we can live in this kingdom way and we can live the way that Jesus taught us and that we could be light, a city on a hill and that we could not try to keep you a secret in any way whatsoever but that we could draw all kinds of people to you because that's what you desire to do. You've given us so much, Lord. So help us to put our faith to work today. And for those of us, Lord, that who may not have this faith yet, we're, we're exploring, may we realize that the simplest thing we do is just say, Jesus, come into my life. Fill me with your spirit, and I want to live this way. And we begin this journey of faith that scares us, that thrills us, that transforms us, that allows us to live for the purpose for which we were made, that resonates so deep in our soul. So may we make those choices today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand up with me as we uh, we just end our service with worship? Let's sing this. You are good, you are good. When there's nothing good in me, you are love, you are love. On display for all to see. 
that is truly what uh, our prayer and our hope is here at Bethel, that we would be a place where um, we are running to his arms, where we are allowing him to reign. He's going to reign regardless. Amen? But if we allow him to reign in our lives, to do things that only he can do, he will touch those people around us, drawing them to himself. And we have a chance to participate in that. Isn't that amazing? Just as Kevin was talking about, it's a, it's a matter of um, letting go of ourselves, letting Jesus do the work in us. Maybe that's something you're struggling with this morning, and uh, you need someone to hold you up in prayer, or whatever else may be going on in your life that you need some prayer support. just want to invite our prayer counselors forward, and um, right now they'll, they'll come forward, and they're going to meet you right up here by these colorful balloons and flags. You get to pray under the flags this morning. Woohoo! So, um, and they'll pray with you right after the service as, uh, for whatever you need prayer for. Speaking of prayer, too, we have a great opportunity. This evening is our monthly corporate prayer time. It's at 5.30. It's upstairs. And join um, with others as we just pray for God to be at work here in our midst. Um, we also, if you want to know a little bit more about Bethel and what's going on here, maybe you've attended a couple Sundays and you want to know really how to get involved, there's something called the living room. It's uh, the couches right after the service concludes. If you meet back there for 10, 15 minutes, we'd love to just share with you um, what's going on and how to get plugged in. So, uh, Kevin, thank you so much for sharing with us this morning. And, you know, how many times do you really get a chance to just hear God's word read? And the words of Jesus just bathing over us. That's not quite grammatically correct. But really, we were awash in um, Jesus' words today, and I appreciate that. So thank you. Uh, may you go out, experience him this week, share the love with those you come in contact with, and start by giving someone, as you leave, you know, high five, a hug, encouragement. Uh, have a great week. We love you, and we look forward to seeing you soon.